really making sure that you are true to yourself because at the end of the day, you have to hold yourself accountable. And that I think is the, the biggest motivating factor for me. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, everybody. Welcome to the Triple H season, the habits and hacks from Hopkins. And on today's episode, we have Dr. Megan Birkenstock. Hi, Megan. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me, Kim. I really appreciate this. Well, I'm so glad you could make the time. I know you're super busy. Why don't you tell everyone what you do here at Hopkins, Dr. Birkenstock? Sure. I'm an assistant professor of ophthalmology at the Wilmer Eye Institute. So I see patients four days a week and I have 20% research time and I'm also surgical. So I perform cataract surgeries. And you were just telling me you see about 30 patients a day and you are obviously super busy clinician and I cannot wait to hear what you have to share with everybody today. And I hope you in, as you're sharing your habits or hacks or routines, don't be too humble and tell people all the great news you just shared with me about what you were able to accomplish in terms of your scholarship, but take it away, Megan. Thank you. Well, I I was saying that there is sometimes a silver lining with COVID. And although our clinics were decreased with patient volumes, I used that time to really hone in on my research. And as I mentioned, I'm only 20% uh, research time during the week. So whenever I'm sitting down and I'm trying to write a paper, I really make time for it. I hold myself accountable. And if I say I'm going to write a paper for eight hours straight, I will sit with my computer for eight hours straight in order to accomplish things. And the beauty of COVID was that I had a little bit more time to do my research with, again, less volumes and and the clinic um, only seeing emergency patients. And I was able to write 16 papers in the course of the six weeks of, of basically shutdown. So really finding the time and making it happen is the key to success with writing, in my opinion. Well, I hang on there, Megan, because I want everyone to hear what you just said. She has, she did say 16, one, six papers that she published during that little lull. So that is just incredible amount of productivity. And I'd asked her, I'm like, where did those papers come from? And you said they were in various stages of production and needed different levels of tweaking. But for you, that what I usually advise against binge writing because you can't sustain a binge worked for you in these unprecedented times because you had that amount of protected time. And how do you see that playing forward though, Megan? I mean, knowing that, you know, God willing, there we won't have much longer or many more global pandemics that will shut everything down, that you're not going to have all this big bulk of time. How do you um, see that discipline playing forward? Sure. I thought about this after the fact. And another, um, I, I think, trick for me that helps me accomplish what I'm saying I'm going to do is also being responsible to others. So within our division, and I'm an ocular immunologist, so I take care of patients with ocular inflammation, was that I started a writing accountability group or a WAG. And therefore, every time when we meet once a month, it's did you do that? Here's our running list. Well, nothing changed off of that list in about two, three weeks. What's going on, Dr. Birkenstock? And it is immensely helpful. (laughs) So yeah, you're talking about that accountability. I love it. It sounds like you are also though very, you have that sense of personal discipline that you have that stubborn persistence that um, pushes you forward 
regardless, but I love that you kind of elevated it to a community accountable to, to somebody else. Because a lot of times, those of us in academia were obviously disciplined enough that we got through medical school, doctoral programs, postdoctoral fellowships, all those kinds of things. So we're clearly disciplined academically. And yet, when we get into academic medicine, all the responsibilities that come at us all day long from various areas of our life, our research, our education, our teaching, our admin, supervising, leading, it's so easy to put our own papers and our own scholarship at the very, very bottom thinking, well, it's not urgent. It's not critical. It doesn't have to happen today. So I, I, I totally appreciate the fact that it's one thing to say, you know, we're accountable to ourselves and say, I'm going to sit down when I, if I say I'm going to write for eight hours, by gosh and by golly, I'm going to do it. And then that, that kind of whole thing of guilt though can come in when you've got these other things or people waiting for us to do other things. So adding that other element of accountability to somebody else kind of ramps up the, just kind of that um, responsibility, I guess. And so I, I like how that worked for you and how you added that in. Do you mm. see, do you see how that works for other people or how do you use the personal accountability and then the public accountability together? So it gave me another level of leadership within my division by instituting this uh, on a monthly basis. So yes, there's more administrative needs, but I see it as as being helpful not only for myself, because I have definitely continued to write and put more papers out even after the shutdown, but also I found a lot of my colleagues felt it helpful. It was mentally clearing. We knew what everybody else was doing, which then fostered further thoughts on collaborative research. And I think it really just opened up doors that we didn't realize that were there because we were so siloed without realizing it. And so it really became not only personally helpful, but also for my colleagues to know what's going on in our division, what we individually held accountable to ourselves, and how we could foster more departmental change in a good way moving forward. Wow, I love that. I love that community. That was the kind of one of the unanticipated benefits of a WAG when um, I first came, you know, came up with those with Dr. Karma Fouché when I was at Rush University Medical Center back in, oh my gosh, 2005 or six, was we, we didn't really anticipate how much the community building and the social support would be so important. And you just mentioned that, like removing the silos and that sense of isolation and like, I'm the only one. It really, not only does it ramp, you know, the the WAG build the scholarly productivity, but you have that sense of connection and belonging and the fact that someone misses you. And if you're not around, you don't show up for the WAG or really kind of builds a sense of, I want to help somebody else out and, and reaching out to each other and lifting each other up. So thanks for, for um, reminding us about WAGs. What else um, do you thanks. do that makes you so immensely um, productive, Megan? I, I think sometimes as an assistant professor, we're just learning. We don't know all of the ropes. We don't know all the tips and tricks for um, navigating professional societies or even what we need to do sometimes to get to the next level. We all, or for the most part, have a goal to make associate professor and, and, and move through the ranks. But how does one actually accomplish that? And um, having a process mentor, I found it was helpful. I found a full professor in the Department of Ophthalmology 
who was on the associate professor promotions committee and didn't know me other than my name and maybe referring me some patients and was able to objectively look at my CV, which after a phone call I sent to him, he reviewed and said, based on what I see, you're doing a good job, but I would do more in X, Y, and Z realms in order to make yourself a viable candidate for promotion. And I I had no idea I needed to do those things. So talking to him was a wealth of information that if I didn't have him as another mentor besides the head of my division or my mentor from fellowship, I would have missed out on easily. Wow. That is really, really important, Megan. The idea of having a mentoring team, I you know, you're right. You don't know what you don't know. So you just come into a program, an institution, a department, a new leadership position thinking, well, I'll just talk to the people who are a rung above me in this and they'll tell more my supervisor or people who are doing that and make them, it makes a lot of sense. That's just logical. But then you think if I expand my field of vision, that really can open up some things that you don't know that you don't know. So, so many of us have like this laser focus, which is good and has served us well. Uh, because it's gotten us to this point. But then if we kind of sit back and take a moment and just kind of, again, like expand the the field or expand our thought process and recognize we can learn something from people who maybe aren't, aren't even in the field or maybe aren't, don't know our science particularly, but they know the politics or they understand maneuvering or building relationships in different areas that you think, who, who would have thought that? So that's a great example of um, how you figured that you don't know what you know until you ask somebody else and you go, oh, never would have thought that, but good for you. What else do you have to share with us? Well, I think my last point would be simply networking. And I think it goes sometimes without saying, but I don't think until I've been um, in my profession for about five years now that I've fully recognize the need for it. And it, and obviously it starts in medical school with the people you know and the people you meet your department when you're a resident and you're a fellow. And um, also the other people who are going through training at the same time as you. Some of my more recent collaborations are with other doctors who were fellows at the same time with me in ocular immunology. And even though we're all at different medical centers now, it doesn't matter because we're all doing the same thing. And having that bond that started years ago has cultivated fruitful relationships, both personally and then also professionally, where we're trying to move our discipline forward by doing studies together and forming our own groups. So it goes without saying that you obviously need people ahead of you um, who can mentor you, people who are a part of your professional societies and your meetings that you attend to, you know, if you meet them, they can help by allowing you to have exposure to committees, nominate you for things, but also the people who are wearing the exact same shoes as you, who go through the same things on a daily basis and live as an assistant professor who have these dreams of promotion, go so far by not only giving you an ear to listen, but also to work together in order to, again, rise up together and build this community to help each other. That's another good example, a good reminder that we know in our leadership programs, we talk about that a lot of reaching out in our professional societies. And that's, again, people think, well, duh, of course, I'm going to go to my meetings. But I think a lot of people don't recognize 
the value in building those kind of relationships and nurturing them and not just enough that, oh, we're, you know, we're all alums or we have the same credentials. We, we get the science. We read the same journals. But you mentioned, you know, with the mentoring and the leadership stuff, the personal connections, you've obviously built research collaborative teams. And then those research collaborative teams, adding on top of that, that's where you get the invitations to come and speak to that other person, your other colleague's institution, and it's a quid pro quo. Hey, I have a some preliminary studies, or I want to present this paper. You want to invite me or get me invited to this institution, and then in turn, I'll invite you at our grand rounds to come. And that, you know, adding those kinds of things on our CVs of being invited to give national talks or presentations and grand rounds. And then those people ultimately at some point are going to be asked to write letters of recommendation for you when you get promoted because we're all going to be promoted at different rates and levels. And so if you want to be promoted to associate professor, they're going to ask other associate professors. And those other associate professors will be those folks in your professional societies and in your network. So there are more reasons than just the obvious of, you know, building the personal making sure that you have people to support you and have a tribe of people who go, come on, you can do it and kind of raise you up when you feel like the science of the field or the state of affairs is beating you down, but also can help do research as you're doing and get you invited and all those other things. It's some good stuff. It's obviously worked well for you. And I think the theme that I'm hearing from you is that you are clearly into leadership and you, you get the value of the leadership that goes through all those those threads of the mentoring and the networking and the accountability. Um, those are key components and competencies in leadership. Do you have any last advice for anyone listening? Someone someone who may be listening to you going, oh my gosh, I can't believe she writes that much and she sees that many patients and she's, you know, involved in her professional society. What if what are some people like just starting out thinking, well, I can't do that. That's just I mean, that just sounds like a lot. How what what would you tell them? I think prioritizing is is the hardest part, but also the only way, at least that I feel, I've been able to accomplish things. Again, holding myself accountable, making time for things, saying on Tuesday from 12 to 4, I will write this paper and I have to get this paper done in the next month because on Thursday from 2 to 3, I need to meet with so-and-so or have the Zoom meeting and, and truly being organized and sometimes just really sticking to it, even if you feel like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm being pulled in different directions. I really need to do something else, but really making sure that you are true to yourself because at the end of the day, you have to hold yourself accountable. And that I think is the, the biggest motivating factor for me. Finally, I, how do you avoid the distractions? I'm hearing this a lot from everybody, a lot of people that the distractions are just, it's the noise is so much with the emails and the the Fitbits and the Apple iWatches and the, what do you, do you have any personal habits that help you avoid distractions? Yes. When I I turn my email off, when I'm writing, I find a place in my house, which is my couch. And I, I sit with my, my blanket and my cup of coffee. I have no other distractions. It is so quiet. And that's what allows me to just kind of go into my writing world and finding just your happy place. Where are you calm? Where are you relaxed? Where do you feel like somebody's not going to walk in your door or ask you a question or say, hey, can you see this add-on patient? And that's why I work from home because I know if I'm in my office at work, I'm not going to get anything done because people see my light on and people will come in and talk to me or ask me different things that maybe in this moment in time would break my concentration. 
Oh, that is beautiful. Thank you. That is a really great reminder. Just acknowledging the fact that the facts, if this, then that, and, and analyzing like a, just doing a troubleshooting, a process improvement. When I'm here, this happens. So when I'm there, that. So therefore go to the couch, get the blanket. I love it. And I love that you said you actually turn off the emails. That is so, so basic. And guess what? When you do that, nothing, nothing burns down. Hopefully nobody, there's nothing tragic that happens. You just accept that you probably make a lot of progress and feel really good about your progress. So you've been learning from Dr. Megan Birkenstock here at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Birkenstock, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much, Kim. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.